In the dark hours, in the antique books, in the letters long lost and forgotten. There are tales of horror to frighten and disturb. Come, join us as we delve deep into the darkness. Into the sleepless hours when you dare not close your eyes. Brace yourself. For the No Sleep Podcast. Volume 16, Chapter 16. Welcome, sleepless listeners. I'm your host, David Cummings. Do you recall hearing the following stories on our show? The Little Man... Foliage. It sees you when you're sleeping. Caleb. Sketchbook. These are just some of the many stories we've adapted on the podcast by author Gemma Amour. And beyond the No Sleep podcast, Gemma has released many works, including collections and novels. But chief among them is her novella, Dear Laura, published in 2019 and nominated for a Stoker Award for that same year. It's a dark, twisted tale about obsession, guilt, and how far a person will go to put her ghosts to bed. It's a fantastic book that we here at the No Sleep Podcast are huge fans of. And so, with that in mind, we're extremely proud to announce that a six-part audio drama adaptation of Dear Laura, written by Gemma herself, will be launching on our new line of serialized audio dramas. We have so many exciting things planned for the line, and they begin here. Episode 1 of Dear Laura will be releasing alongside Episode 18. So, August 7th for season pass holders, and August 8th for everybody. Each episode will be attached to the end of your regular No Sleep Podcast episode, so no worries about seeking out a new feed. The regular episode will be its usual two or three stories running around an hour, then we'll include the chapters of Dear Laura after those, so you'll be getting well over 90 minutes of content. And as an added bonus, if you're a Season Pass 16 holder, you'll receive each episode of Dear Laura not only a day early, but as a separate episode in your existing Season 16 feed. We are thrilled to be launching the serialized audio drama line with such a stellar adaptation of a wonderful novella. Further details of upcoming audio dramas, as well as more details on Dear Laura itself, will be revealed as time goes on. But for now, prepare yourself for a quid pro quo correspondence that's sure to grip and terrify you until the very last word. So listen out for Dear Laura the exclusive No Sleep Podcast audio drama by Gemma Amore, launching alongside Season 16, Episode 18, on the weekend of August 7th. We can't wait for you to join us. Now, I think it's time to catch everyone up to date to present day. So, we know this. Our storage unit is somehow now intact. The whispering pages then blew up inexplicably. We fled, and the next information we received was via the news. 
An explosion had been reported on that block, but when emergency services arrived, there was no sign of any damage to anything. The voice in my head, the malevolent voice that led me to blow up the storage unit, seems to have stopped. From the moment I was dragged from the bookstore, in fact. So between Joanna and I, here's what we've been able to piece together about the whole situation. There are two forces at work. One, our benefactor, who's connected to Whispering Pages, formerly the thickening plot, in some way. Maybe he's the former owner, Boston Coleridge, but something causes Joanna to believe that's not the case. She won't tell me what yet. In her words, quote, in case there's still hope, end quote. This uh, force is the one that wants me to perform the stories, and we believe it to be benevolent. We believe it's the reason the storage unit and the bookstore were, were unexploded, I guess, for want of a better term. And whoever dragged us out of the Whispering Pages is working for this force, which I hope we're right about being a force for good. Then there is another force, the sinister voice in my head. The other person who contacted me back in episode 11, telling me to go back to the storage unit, which led me to blowing it up. The one who seems to want to prevent me accessing the stories I'm meant to tell. And the one who's been constantly warning me, this is the whisper before the scream, and and the scream is almost here. At first, I struggled to accept that this force could be malevolent, but then Joanna pointed something out. This force, this force seems to be warning me about the scream and guiding my actions in order to prevent it. Screams are usually a call for help. When Joanna was a little girl, a friend of hers went missing, along with her whole family. It was an unsolved case. One day, years later, when going through the inventory she'd purchased from Boston Coleridge upon buying Whispering Pages, Joanna found a small journal. It was unmistakably her childhood friend's writing. She'd removed it from the store and kept it in her home. When she showed me, I felt the same electricity I usually do when I know something has to be shared. Joanna has changed names to protect anonymity, but let's call her friend Jeanette Brown. Nicole Goodnight has kindly read it for us. Joanna believes the contents to be true, even though to you, they might sound like a fairy tale. diary. Emma was mean today. She and I were watching TV and Lily came in asking to go for a walk in the woods. She wanted to see butterflies. I wanted to go, but Emma said no and we aren't allowed to go into the woods or even out the house without her. Lily got all pouty and asked why not. I knew it was just because Emma didn't want to. She wanted to keep watching TV, even though what we were watching wasn't very interesting. It was about some older kids going to school and they kept kissing each other all the time and then crying about it. I would cry too if I had to kiss so much. But Emma is smart and knew that if she told Lily she didn't want to go, Lily would stop bothering her until we went. So Emma did what Mommy always says is the worst thing to do. She lied. She told Lily that there were monsters out in the woods, evil things that would hurt anyone who walked in there, even in the daylight. 
She even said there was a ghost, too. Lily got scared and started crying, and I yelled at Emma to shut up, which is something Mommy says I'm not allowed to say, but I know Emma won't tell, because then I'd tell that Emma was lying and making Lily cry. Then Emma rolled her eyes in the way she does and said we were both babies and to go be babies somewhere else. I left and took Lily with me because I was starting to cry and I didn't want Emma to see. It wasn't nice of Emma to call me a baby. I'm eight. That's too old to be a baby. Emma thinks she's so cool and grown up just because she's 11, but she's not cool. She's a jerk. Dear Diary, Lily and I aren't talking to Emma. Lily wouldn't believe that Emma was lying yesterday, so I reminded her of all the times we walked in the woods before with Mommy, and nothing bad had happened at all. Lily couldn't remember. I told Lily that we should go to the woods together, even though Mommy said not to go anywhere without Emma. But Lily said she didn't want to go anymore, and when I asked why, she started crying and said she was scared of the monsters and the ghost. Poor Lily. Emma can be so mean. That's why we're not playing with her or talking to her. I kind of miss playing with Emma, though. Lily is kind of a baby, which is fine because she's only five, but Emma will never stop thinking I'm a baby if I keep playing with babies. I wish I could think of a way I could prove to Emma that I'm grown up. Then I could teach it to Lily someday when she's done being a baby, but people still see her that way. Dear Diary, After lunch this afternoon, before Emma could go back to the couch and watch more kissy TV, I told her that I knew she was lying and asked her why she was always so mean. I thought that maybe standing up to her would make her stop thinking I'm a baby. I was all prepared because I knew she'd start yelling at me and usually when she yells, I cry, but I wasn't going to cry this time because I needed to prove I wasn't a baby. But Emma didn't yell. She just looked angry and said she wasn't lying. Then she kind of looked sad and said she wished her own sisters would believe and trust her. I asked her what she meant. She told me she couldn't tell me because it was too scary and I would cry and get nightmares. Then mom would know she'd told and she'd get in trouble. And I knew this was how to get her to see how grown up I was. I told her I wouldn't cry and I wouldn't have nightmares and even if I did, I wouldn't tell mommy. And if I screamed at night, I would say I couldn't remember the dream. And if Mommy asked, I would say Emma hadn't told me any bad stories. Emma looked like she didn't believe me, but she said that she would tell me, but that we had to wait until nighttime when Lily was asleep because otherwise, she would want to hear too, and Lily is definitely too much of a baby for that. I told her it was mean to call people babies, even though I agreed with her. Emma is going to tell me her grown-up story tonight, and she'll finally see I'm not a baby. Dear Diary, Emma doesn't think I'm a baby anymore, but she's not talking to me. Now she's kind of acting like a baby, but don't tell her I said that. After Mommy and Lily were both asleep, I snuck into Emma's room like she told me to. She was sitting cross-legged on her bed, and she patted the bed to invite me on. I've never been allowed to sit on Emma's bed before. It was so exciting. But she ruined it when she told me her stupid story. If she was trying to convince me that she was telling the truth or trying to scare me, she shouldn't have used such a dumb story. I'm going to write down what she told me. She told me that the town we live in was started hundreds of years ago, but even before people were here, other things lived here. 
Not just animals or the Native Americans, but fairies. Yeah, she said fairies. Except she told me that it wasn't fairies like I thought. It was fairies with an E instead of an I. Fairies? That doesn't look right. I should just write her dumb story. Here it is, just like she said it. Hundreds of years ago, before there were people, there were fairies all over the place, especially in the big forest that used to cover our entire town. When Native Americans first came, they honored the fairies and left them gifts and didn't try to hurt them, and the fairies liked the humans. So when other people started coming, the fairies didn't mind at first when they cut down some of the trees to build their houses. They knew that everyone needed homes. They even offered some of their magic to help the people survive their first winter. But the people didn't seem to notice them. They congratulated themselves for being so smart to survive the winter on their own. They told everyone they could about their success, which drew more people to the small village. More trees were being cut down, and the fairies were not being honored at all. There was no thanks in return for their help or awe of their power. A few of the new humans could see the fairies and see what was happening, but it wasn't enough for any of the others to believe. The few that could see and tried to talk about it were called crazy and locked away. Fairies are complicated, and they aren't at all like Tinkerbell. Tinkerbell is a fairy, though, so I don't know what Emma was talking about. Fairies are powerful, magical beings, and they don't like being disrespected. So when the new humans failed to show them the respect they deserved, they stopped using their magic to help and instead use it for revenge. They caused accidents and destruction and even stole children. They would replace the children they took with their own children, so evil and wrong that the parents were forced to kill them. Some people fled the village after the fairies started causing so many problems. They thought the village was cursed. But the village kept growing anyway, and the humans kept doing things the fairies found disrespectful, and the fairies kept fighting back. It got so bad that the few people who knew about the fairies got together and decided to do something. The leader of this group was an old witch. She knew a lot about the ways of the fairies. She could do more than just see the fairies. She could talk to them, and even summon them whenever she pleased. She used to be friends with the fairies, but the fairies had been torturing the villagers for so long despite her pleas for peace that she had forgotten whose fault the whole situation was. She blamed the fairies and thought they were cruel and greedy. She decided that the best way to save the village would be to trick the fairies and trap them in a way they could never hurt the village again. The old witch knew all about how dangerous the fairies could be, but she also knew their weaknesses. They couldn't lie. They couldn't cross running water. And iron was poisonous to them. The lying thing wasn't much use, and they were far away from any water, but they had plenty of iron. Together, she and her friends began to plan and go to work. For a week leading up to a full moon, the group dug holes deep in the woods, far from the village, in the shape of a circle. They gathered all the iron pieces they could carry. Finally, on the night of the full moon, the old witch went to the center of the circle made by the holes and used all of her power to summon as many fairies as she could. She told the ones that came that she was there as a messenger from the village to propose a compromise so the humans and the fairies could live in peace. But she needed all of the local fairies present to hear the deal and agree to it. If even one fairy would not agree and continue to torment the village, the villagers would launch a deadly attack. So all of the fairies were gathered inside the circle of holes. As soon as every fairy was present, the witch loudly started speaking words that acted as a signal to her friends who were hidden in the woods around her. 
Quickly, they put out pieces of iron in each hole and buried them, creating a barrier of iron the fairies couldn't cross. They hammered extra pieces into trees or hid them in bushes or under rocks for good measure. When they had placed the last piece of iron, they called out to the witch, who had been talking loudly and energetically to keep the fairies distracted. As soon as the call came through, she turned and ran as quickly as she could. But she had not thought of everything when setting up her plan and hadn't made sure her escape route was clear. She tripped over a branch and fell. It only took seconds for her to be overrun by angry fairies who had realized they had been tricked. Some fairies held on to her so she couldn't escape, and others rushed to the edge of the iron circle, trying to find a weakness. But the witch's friends had done well, and there were no gaps for the fairies to escape through. They were trapped in a circle of the woods, far away from the village. The fairies went into a rage and aimed it at the witch, the only human they had access to. They tortured her, and she died screaming. But she was the last human the fairies ever hurt. The witch's friends went back to the village and never spoke of what happened again. Things got better in the village, and people forgot about how hard it had been for a while. The village continued to grow until it became the town we live in. The town has gotten closer and closer to the circle, but the witch's ghost haunts the area so the circle is never broken and her sacrifice won't go to waste. Anytime someone tries to cut down the trees in that circle to build a new house or a new road, bad things happen that shut down construction before it can even start. Our house is the closest thing in town to the circle, and it starts just inside the woods in our backyard. If someone goes there, the fairies will be able to hurt them. They're so full of hate now that they will attack any human, whether or not the human has done anything wrong. And if the fairies don't get the human, the ghost of the witch will. So that's why Emma said we couldn't go walking in the woods. Tyree, can you believe she expected me to believe that? The story did scare me a little, but I still knew it couldn't be true, and I laughed in Emma's face when she was done. I told her I knew that she was lying again, and how stupid does she think I am? And then Emma started crying. Emma started crying like a baby. She told me to get out of her room and that she would never speak to me again. I think she actually believes that story. Emma's stupid. She's the baby. Dear Diary, I'm mad at myself. I had nightmares about Emma's dumb story last night. And when I woke up from one, there were weird sounds coming from the woods. There are always weird sounds that come from the woods at night. Mommy says a whole lot of different animals come out at night and they make different noises than the daytime animals, which can sound scary. But last night, I could only think of the witch screaming and I was imagining that's what the noises were. But that's dumb. And I'm not dumb like Emma. I don't know why Emma believes that story, but I'm too old to believe in fairy tales. Lily has started talking about wanting to see the butterflies in the woods again. I think she forgot how Emma scared her. She told me the butterflies look so pretty from her window, and she wants to see them up close and maybe even catch one to keep in her room. I looked out my window and I didn't see any butterflies, but that's okay. If Lily wants to go into the woods, she should be able to. After last night, I know I'm more grown up than Emma, even if she is older than me. I told Lily I would take her on a walk in the woods tomorrow. We'll stay on the little path, and I'll make sure we can always see the house. And then I'll tell Mommy how grown up I am, and she'll say that Lily and I can do whatever we want without stupid Emma. 
Dear Diary, Lily and I went into the woods today. After lunch, Emma went into her room and slammed her door like she has since she told me her fairy story. It was easy for Lily and I to go out the back door into the backyard. I don't think she knows we ever left. We started walking down the path. I kept checking behind me that I could still see the house. Lily was skipping ahead of me and she kept reaching out like she was grabbing for something and giggling. When I asked her what she was doing, she said she was playing with the butterflies. I told her that there weren't any butterflies and she ignored me. I had to grab her a few times before she went off the path. I was scared about her going off the path at all. I didn't believe Emma's story, but it had frightened me. And being in the woods made me remember the part of the nightmare I had a few nights ago. In the nightmare, Lily was getting eaten by the woods. After a little bit, I don't know how long, the path started to curve and I couldn't see the house anymore. I decided it was time to go home, but when I turned around to tell Lily, she was gone. I called for her, but she didn't answer me, and I panicked. I started running down the path away from the house and screaming for her. I didn't have to go far before I found her. She was off the path, not very much, behind some bushes. I'm glad she was wearing her bright pink pants and yellow shirt so that it was easy to see her. I might have missed her if she wasn't so bright. I called her name, trying to pretend I was mommy when she catches us doing something bad. Lily didn't even look at me, though, so I had to go off the path to get her. When I got to where she was, I saw she was digging in the ground. I asked her what she was doing. She told me the butterflies told her there was treasure buried there. I told her that I hadn't seen one butterfly all afternoon and that even if there were butterflies, they didn't talk. She ignored me and kept digging. This reminded me of Emma's story and the buried iron, and I got really scared, so I grabbed her and pulled her away. I pulled too hard and I fell backwards with Lily falling on top of me. And when we were getting up, I saw Lily had something in her hand. Lily looked really excited and then confused. She held out what she had to me and asked what kind of treasure it was. It was a dirt-covered lump. Under the dirt was dark gray. It wasn't any kind of shape at all, just a lump. I took it from her. It felt like metal. I don't think I've seen iron before, but I think that's what it was. I was getting more and more scared. I told Lily it wasn't treasure and that we had to put it back. I went back to the hole to bury it again, but Lily ran past me deeper into the woods. She said the butterflies were showing her a place where there was more treasure. She ran behind a tree and I couldn't see her anymore. I ran after her with the metal lump still in my hand. I found her behind a tree just standing and staring at something. There was nothing around that I could see. I was so scared by then, I I didn't even tell her to come back. I wrapped my arms around her and picked her up to carry her back. And as soon as I had her, she started squirming and screaming like I was hurting her. I've never heard Lily scream like that. I don't know how I held on to her, but I did. I dragged her back to the path, still screaming, and when I passed the dug-up hole, I dropped the metal lump back in and kicked as much dirt as I could over it. Lily calmed down after that, and by the time we got to the path, she was completely normal again. She skipped all the way home. When we got there, Lily asked if we could go back to the woods tomorrow, but I told her no. She just shrugged and went to her room. I don't know what happened. I'm not sure if anything did happen. Maybe Lily was just being a little brat. Maybe I believe Emma's story now. Dear Diary, Something is wrong with Lily. 
Last night, she threw a huge tantrum during dinner because Mommy found out that Lily hadn't washed her hands and tried to make her go do it. She said she wouldn't and threw her plate on the floor. The plate broke and food splattered everywhere. Mommy got mad and took Lily to her room and both of them yelled and yelled. When Mommy came back to clean up the food, Lily was still screaming. It sounded like when she was screaming in the woods yesterday. She stopped after a bit, but she didn't come out of her room at all. But I woke up in the middle of the night, and she was standing by my bed. She was staring at me. I asked her what she was doing. She thanked me for taking her into the woods. Then she got on her tiptoes and kissed me on the cheek. It was all wrong. Not just how she was acting, but her voice and her eyes. It was Lily's voice, but I've never heard her sound that way before. She sounded so serious. And she didn't have Lily's eyes. They were blue like Lily's eyes, but the wrong kind of blue. Not like the sky, but like ice. I couldn't get back to sleep after Lily left, and I heard the weird noises again, so I went to look out the window. There was a woman in the backyard. She was right at the start of the little trail into the woods, and she was looking straight at me. She looked so mad. I ran back to bed and hid under the covers. I guess I fell asleep eventually. I'm not sure if the woman was a dream or not. I really hope so. I think I made a really big mistake. Dear Diary, I didn't see Lily all day. I want to tell Emma what happened, but I'm scared to. I think she knows, though, because she wouldn't look at me all day. The one time I did catch her looking at me, she looked really sad and hurt, like I had done something mean to her. When I came back into my room for bedtime, there was a something on my pillow. It was a dirty lump of metal. Dear Diary, in the middle of the night, I don't know why I woke up, but I, I think I heard a scream. There are a lot of noises coming from the woods, more than normal. I can't see anything in the backyard. I think the scream that woke me wasn't from the woods. I think it was from inside. Was it Emma? Mommy? Maybe it didn't happen at all. I locked my bedroom door. I tried calling for Mommy, but Mommy hasn't come. There are a lot of noises inside the house now. It sounds like when Lily threw the plate at dinner, but more. Like there are a lot of Lilies throwing a lot of plates. Emma just screamed. I know I heard that. What's happening, diary? What's happening? Help me. Help me. Help me. I don't know what to do. Someone is trying to get into my room. It's Lily. She's asking me to come look at the butterflies with her. She's saying we don't need to go to the woods. The butterflies are in the house and they're prettier than ever. She's shaking the door handle harder than I thought Lily would be able to. They're scratching at the door and pounding, and they're going to get in soon. I just know it. I don't know what they are. I don't know what's happening. I wish I'd never gone into the woods. Please, I take it back. I'll never go there again. I believe Emma. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. The door opened. I'm hiding under the bed, but I can see Lily's feet. She's moving right towards me. Oh, no. Oh no, oh no, 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 no.
In our first tale, we join a pair of brothers as they engage in a time-honored ritual, going camping and getting really, really drunk. And of course that's fine and totally safe, as long as you don't wander off and fall off a cliff or step in a bear trap or try seducing a mountain lion. But in this tale, shared with us by author Carol Ann Morris, even staying at the campsite won't keep these brothers safe. Performing this tale is Kyle Akers. So get wasted or stay sober, keep watch or fall asleep. It doesn't really matter once you're spotted by the Whistler. My brother David and I used to camp on some land out in the country that belonged to our father. We always set up in a large clearing in the middle of the property, surrounded by trees on all sides. It was perfect, really. Private, secluded, no one around for miles. On this particular night, we'd each had close to a handle of whiskey, which wasn't unusual. Needless to say, we were both thoroughly drunk. We went to bed sometime around 12 or 1 a.m., each of us stumbling to our respective tents and laughing like fools as we tried to unzip the entrance flaps. I remember collapsing on top of my sleeping bag and instantly passing out. Then, maybe two or three hours later, there was this sound. It woke me from my drunken stupor, but it wasn't loud. It was just so strange and so close. I first thought that I was just drunkenly hearing things. My head was spinning and pounding, and my mouth was as dry as sun-bleached cotton, so I figured it was just my ears ringing. It certainly wouldn't have been the first time. I lay there for a few more seconds trying to get a grip, but the longer I listened to that sound, the more I realized that it wasn't my ears ringing. It was something outside of my tent. I then thought it was David trying to scare me. It had to be. I opened my mouth to yell at him to shut up, but something stopped me. There was something strange about that sound. It sounded like whistling, but David didn't stop to take a breath or change a note at all, like you might expect. It was just this continuous, low-pitched whistle, filtering into my tent from the otherwise silent night. I listened to it for another minute or two, waiting on him to draw another breath, and he never did. And then a certainty that it wasn't my brother making that sound hit me. I just knew it somehow. And with that certainty came an overwhelming fear. As the seconds ticked by, the whistling continued unbroken. I waited for it to stop, but it didn't. And I knew that I had to get up. I rose from my sleeping bag quietly as I could, swaying when I got to my feet. My stomach began to churn violently and the ground seemed to rock beneath my feet. I was still very much drunk. I fumbled in the darkness for the zipper on the tent flap and slowly unzipped it, wincing at how loud it sounded. I peered out across our dying fire at David's tent, and I saw him crouched in a strange position at its entrance. The look on his face terrified me. His eyes were wide and wild with fear staring toward me, and his mouth was gaping open unnaturally wide. At first I thought he was looking at me, but as my eyes adjusted, I realized that He was looking at something behind me. And all the while, that insane whistling continued. I craned my neck around and saw someone standing behind my tent. He was tall and big, bigger than anyone I'd ever seen. I couldn't make out any other features. It was like he was shrouded in darkness, a gigantic, hulking shadow. And as soon as I laid eyes on him, the whistling stopped. 
It didn't even occur to me to confront the stranger, to ask him who he was or what he wanted. The flight instincts took over me with primal control. I stumbled clumsily out of my tent and ran toward David. His eyes never left the stranger behind my tent. His face was frozen in that terrified, almost inhuman expression. I reached for his arm and jerked him to his feet. Run! We made for the trees. We were barefoot and I could feel the rocks and underbrush tearing at my skin. It was impossible to see. Under the cover of the pines, the moonlight didn't penetrate. We were running as blind men. And then the stranger started chasing us. I could hear his footfalls. They were heavy. So heavy. It sounded like he had boulders strapped to his feet. The ground seemed to shake with each impact. I've never heard anything like that. Suddenly there was a sickening thud at my side and David's groan of pain. He'd run into a tree. I skid to a halt, feeling the flesh on the bottoms of my feet ripping away. I yelled David's name, but he didn't answer. It was so dark. I couldn't see where he'd fallen. I spun around wildly, trying to spot him, but all I saw were shadows. And those immensely heavy footfalls continued their approach. Closer and closer. And then the whistling started again. That low, unbroken sound that had woken me just minutes before. Panic seized me, and I ran. God help me. I ran. I left David lying somewhere there on the ground, and I ran away like a coward. By some miracle, I shortly reached another clearing. I put some distance between myself and the trees from which I'd emerged, then stopped and listened. I couldn't hear the stranger's footfalls. I couldn't hear the whistling. I couldn't hear David. It was silent. I glanced around the clearing frantically, wondering what to do. Coming to such a sudden stop caused a wave of nausea to roll over me, and I doubled over, heaving whiskey and bile onto the ground. When I looked up, he was standing there just outside of the tree line. The gigantic stranger facing me. He slowly raised his right arm and I realized that he was holding something up. No, someone. It was David. I could see his face in the moonlight. It was still frozen in that horrified expression, but I couldn't see the stranger's face. He seemed to be made of shadow. The stranger had a fistful of David's hair and was holding him up at an on angle. He began pulling David's limp body up off the ground until he held him suspended. And then there was a wet ripping sound, and David's body fell back to the ground. It was his scalp ripping away from his skull, unable to bear the weight of his body. The stranger didn't drop his arm, though he just stood there, holding David's scalp out toward me. I blinked, and he was gone. The stranger was gone. I stood there for a second or two, then stumbled toward David. His body lay in a heap. And in the silver glow of the moonlight, I could see the glistening, exposed bit of skull where his scalp should have been. I shook him and yelled his name, but he didn't respond. I placed two fingers against his neck. There was no pulse. I didn't know what to do, so I just collapsed beside him and cried. I had no wits left. I must have fallen asleep because the next thing I knew it was dawn. I awoke laying on my side, my knees tucked into my chest. I won't describe the splitting hangover headache, nor the rips and tears on my feet and shins from running through the brush, because none of that matters. Because when I woke up, David's body was gone. But lying there just a few feet away from me was a bloody, torn scalp. In a daze, I rushed back to the campsite, expecting to find David or at least some other trace of him. But there was nothing. 
just our two tents and the remaining embers of our fire. David was nowhere to be seen. I retrieved my cell phone from my tent, intending to call 911, but I had one missed call and one voicemail. They had come through at 4.57 a.m., and they were from David. I could hardly type my passcode because of my trembling fingers. I pressed play on the voicemail and held the phone up to my ear, and all I heard was a continuous, low-pitched whistle. Quietly tolerating things you don't think you'll enjoy for the benefit of a loved one is admirable, especially when you're open to the possibility of having your mind changed. It shows a real strength of character, a real sense of love. But in this tale, shared with us by author Sarah Century, we learn that sometimes stubbornness could have saved you from something much worse than an unenjoyable time. Performing this tale are Wafia White and Nicole Goodnight. So next time you're taking one for the team, consider being selfish instead. After all, your acquiescence might only be a small light. When I got to choose our vacation, we visited several landmarks and a half a dozen museums in Paris and Berlin. This was mutually allowed on the condition that if we splurged, our next trip would be more reserved. A year later, it was time to pay the piper. While I was on the phone with my wife's Ashley's mother one night, she suggested that we stay at their cabin in Northern California for a week or two. Ashley seemed reluctant at first, but her mom insisted, and I agreed, more to tease Ashley than out of sincere interest. When the call ended, I realized what I had done. We were going to be going camping for a whole week of our lives, and it was all my fault. I had never even actually been camping, but I didn't mention that to Ashley. Camping was a natural part of her life. I don't think that it would cross her mind that a person could live their whole lives and never once sleep outdoors by choice. It might have been our different backgrounds. She'd been a part of the wholesome suburban family unit while I lived in the middle of the city with an overworked single mother and three other siblings. I had never spent much time in the woods at all, and I was fine with that. I'd rather read a book at home or go see a movie, or just stay in bed. Truly, anything other than camping would be fine. I didn't mention my predisposition against all things nature, not because I didn't want to upset Ashley, but because I wanted to give her my participation with no strings attached, as she always done for me. Even if I was secretly bemoaning the trip, I didn't want to assume I would hate it. Maybe I wouldn't. 
Maybe we would just spend the whole time talking and having sex. And sure, sometimes hiking in daunting routes that she had mapped out for us. Anything was possible, I reasoned. Here, in my 30s, I might just finally become the kind of lesbian that loves camping all of a sudden. Maybe I would buy my first flannel shirt. The sky was the limit. Truly, the limit. This was a sincere hope, I murmured, when my friends looked at me, appalled, and cried out, You? Camping? As if the very idea entailed a forbidden merging between diametrically opposed concepts, that could only end a catastrophe. As long as my beloved wife is with me, it'll be lovely. I said it with a level of sincerity that couldn't help but sound like bullshit. My friends moaned. We eventually left the bar. Life moved on. Ashley made plans. I dreaded the moment, but the day of our departure finally came. I ate an edible before we got in the car. So I had to admit the drive was amazing. Ashley was incredibly attracted to me all day, even more so than usual. I gazed at her admirably, as she took charge, helped me pack, got us out of the door on time. She calmly and confidently drove us out of the city and into the woods, listening to a lot of the shoegaze bands that I couldn't tell apart, but she could, and occasionally mentioning fun facts about landmarks as we cruised along. My heart ached. I had married not just a gorgeous, talented woman, but also an amateur tour guide. I was so lucky. I couldn't stop staring at her hands, gripping the steering wheels as the shadow from the trees overhead shifted and danced across her skin. I knew the first night would be in the cabin, so already I had my mind fully invested in our night together, completely alone and far away from thin walls and prying ears of our overcrowded apartment complex. It was like a dream. And it didn't end when she stopped the car and showed me the home away from home that defined so much of her childhood. Up on the steep, rocky hill overlooking the lake, surrounded by tall trees, there was a small cabin. This was where my Amy spent her summers as a girl. It was so wholesome. I spent my preteen years trying to look cool in front of the older girls and bumming cigarettes at the house shows while she was out here roasting marshmallows around a campfire. What a nerd. I blushed with love for her. After a quick tour of the property, she pulled me inside and pushed me against the wall. And we made love off and on for most of the rest of the day. She was so beautiful that night smoking cigarettes on the balcony and telling me things I'd never known about her. The stress of her job was completely gone from her eyes, and she laughed loudly with me, and we drank wine and whispered sweet things to each other until early in the morning. It was late in our evening when I had got around to the question I'd been waiting to ask. Of the two of us, I was always the one that thought every place we visited was haunted, Ashley always disagreed, so I was half-teasing her skepticism when I attempted a casual tone. Um, did you ever see any ghosts here? (laughs) 
I knew you were going to ask. You always do this. You're so morbid. I'm morbid? Or the world is morbid? You are. You want to know because why? What will you get out of it? I'll tell you what I'll get out of it. You waking me up in the middle of the night because you're having nightmares. No, I'm brave now. Since when? Last week? Since all year. You didn't notice? I never have bad dreams anymore. Why not? Some would say I conquered them by sheer force of will, but I personally would give all the credit to my beautiful wife, who selflessly supported me from day one. Ashley rolled her eyes. Flattery will get you nowhere you haven't already gotten before. She glanced down over my body, lingering for a while before taking my hand and looking back into my eyes. Well, I can tell you, there's a story of a woman in the woods. Local kids told me. They had a lot of stories of her. Some of us saw her. If she was even real, she... She was probably just a woman who lived alone out here somewhere, but we had stories. My friend told me that she caught up to him by the river and told him when he was going to die. He was never the same after that. He, um... He died not too long after. Baby, that sounds incredibly made up. Ashley looked serious. Well, you know about my... I... I also had a friend go missing when we were kids. Belle. My first girlfriend. You know, we all genuinely thought it was the witch that took her. Like, how kids make things up to make themselves feel better. I'm sure she must have just run away or been kidnapped or... She was silent for a moment, so I broke it. Well, if the witch comes after us, I'll protect you. I can almost definitely take an elderly woman in a fight. Ashley looked like she was about to say something else, but she rolled her eyes instead, squeezing my shoulders. I'd like to think so, but these arms are like putty. Who needs to use arms to win a fight? My strength is my mind. I'm incredibly gifted in the art of negotiation, you know. She grinned, kissing my throat. You are. (laughs) You really are. The second day is the day we should have stayed in bed. Called the whole thing off and did absolutely everything in our power to avoid continuing this horrible, terrible, no good, very bad trip. If we hadn't had such a sweet, relaxing night, maybe, if we had been more inclined to take a second day of luxurious peace and quiet together. Instead, Ashley was up at the crack of dawn, gathering our backpacks and making tofu scramble for breakfast. I tried to start the coffee, but she stopped me, handing me a cup. Here. I kissed her cheek. Thank you. No problem. I didn't want you fumbling around in here pre-caffeine while I'm trying to cook. Sit down. We'll eat on the porch. I obliged, reading the teen magazine from the 90s while waiting to be served. We ate together, basking in the sunlight, listening to the lake and the rustling of the leaves. Eventually, Ashley stood up, a little abruptly. We should get going. The hike itself was brilliant. Again, this is likely because I was high on edibles, But even with an abundance of THC in my system, 
I could recognize that our surroundings were truly something to see. It was sunny and there was a nice breeze. Branches jostled and swayed overhead. Ashley told various anecdotes about her family and their time hiking together. And I listened to her soothing voice without interrupting much. We stopped a few times to lay in the grass and kiss. But in the end, I got tired much earlier than Ashley did. She was walking too quickly for me and seemed nervous and even a little agitated. But she was always so good at hiding her feelings that I couldn't tell for sure. We'd never been on such a long hike together before. So I didn't know if this was just how she got, but her eyes darted through the trees again and again. By the early evening, Ashley was ready to set up camp. It was a place she knew well. There was a beautiful, grassy clearing near a river and a tree carving of the name of her preteen friend turned secret girlfriend turned lost love, Belle. She left the tent and supplies with me while she went to go find some wood for a fire. She didn't come back. I waited and I waited. I tried to stay calm. I stared at the carving on the tree and wondered what Ashley's other relationships had been like before she had formed into the person that married me. I half smiled, thinking of how bad her game must have been when she was a teen suburbanite trying to impress the cool wilderness girls. Even those thoughts couldn't fully distract me from the fact that she'd been gone for far too long. The dread started to creep in. She said 15 minutes, but over an hour eked by with nothing. The sun was going down. I got worried. I paced. The high from the edibles was gone, and I started to crash. I took a step out into the field, trying to get a better vantage point to look for her. I scanned to the top of the trees and the hills in the distance. Nothing. I squinted. Nothing. Nothing. No, not nothing. Something. A figure moving along the path in the hills. Far from me, but close enough to be barely seen. I waved my arms. Ashley! I realized then that the person in the hills was not Ashley. They looked right at me, their eyes glowing like a cat's. I gasped and put both hands over my mouth. The figure moved quickly, too quickly, out of my line of sight. I staggered backwards, looking frantically around me. I needed to find Ashley immediately. Sandra? Ashley's voice. I turned, my heart thundering. She was heading towards me from the woods, carrying kindling in her arms. Where were you? What happened? I thought you were gone. I thought the same about you. Where did you go? I didn't go anywhere. I was waiting for you. No, I came back already. You moved. I didn't. I've been here. She shook her head, biting her lip. She frowned, looking into the distance, searching the tree line with her eyes. How weird. I know it was the spot, the tree with my carving. I've been here a million times. I know it like the back of my hand. I was afraid for you. I thought something had happened. Come here. I trotted over to her. We embraced in the sunset, 
but I couldn't forget the glowing eyes I had seen on the horizon. And I was afraid. I tried to tell her, but it sounded absurd when I actually said it out loud. She simply shrugged and said that we were bound to cross paths with someone on the trail. I was sure it was my imagination. They must have just been wearing glasses. I told myself all the repetitive phrases we say to rationalize the things we don't want to be true. But the worry never left my mind again that night. We had the supplies to make a fire, but it wasn't much longer until dark clouds rolled in overhead and we were hit hard by an unforeseen storm. Ashley assured me that the news had predicted fair weather for the week. In our small tent, it felt like a hurricane. The tent was waterproof, but the storm was harsh. We cuddled together. Ashley quickly fell asleep, but moaned and thrashed uncomfortably. I held her and worried. I had begun to drift into my own fitful slumber, and when I heard a soft noise under all the rainfall, at first, I thought it was nothing more than Ashley's troubled sleep noises, but it was coming from far away. A soft, gentle singing, in the distance, but getting closer. It was so hushed that the words were unintelligible, but it seemed to be coming from all sides at once. I looked out through the cracks in our makeshift tent. At first I saw nothing but the rain and the trees, but after a moment, I saw a small light. My eyes drifted in and out of focus as I began to realize how tired I was. My body felt like it was slowly shutting down against my will. I fortified myself and tried to get a clear look. There should be no light. My heart began to thunder. It was getting closer. The song was impossible to make sense of, but it seemed to get even louder as I tried in vain to hear it over the heavy drops falling all around. Rain gathered on my eyes and my face, and I tried to rub it away with dirty hands. The light was larger and larger. I began to panic, but weariness called me to lay back down. Though I fought it, I was falling asleep. And the singing, the singing was putting me to sleep against my will. I pushed aside the flap. The light had gotten much larger now, much closer. It was human-shaped but not yet human, steadily walking towards us. My stomach lurched with dread as I realized I wasn't going to be conscious for long. Despite how hard my heart was beating, my eyes could barely stay open. Please, no. I tried to wake Ashley. She must have been stricken with the same spell as me. Her eyes fluttered and rolled, but would not open. I tried to put my hand over my ears to force the song out, but it was too strong. The last thing I saw was a woman, radiating light, her features distorted, reaching her hand into our tent. As I fell face forward in the dirt, fading to unconsciousness, her bright glowing hand gripped Ashley's ankle and dragged her away from the tent. I tried to shriek, tried to grab Ashley's wrist, but, but my hand crashed into the cold, wet dirt and the darkness consumed me. When I woke up, I was screaming, leaping out of the sleeping bag, kicking over the tent, leaving everything behind me, 
It was morning, but still dark and damp. Clouds covered the sun. I called out for Ashley. I ran in circles, cried, and panicked. I walked to the center of the great field and sobbed. When she finally walked up to me, at first I couldn't process what I was seeing. Ashley, covered in leaves and mud, striding across the field. I leapt to my feet and ran for her, and we held each other and wept. Ashley pointed across the field into the trees. I woke up there in the woods. I woke up. What happened? I quickly told her what I had seen and how I had fallen asleep against my will. She was weak and wobbly, so we sat on the wet ground. We kissed and clung to each other. She was scraped and bruised, as if she'd actually been dragged across the field. I ached with guilt. I wish I could have fought the person that took her, but how could I have? She eventually suggested that we grab our things and head back to the house, and I agreed on the condition that we could also drive the hell out of there the second we made it to the front steps. Ashley looked haggard. She threw up more than once. Eventually, she suggested that we ride to her brother's old rowboat as far as we could back towards the cabin. It didn't look like she had the strength to walk. I was shaking with fear, terrified that she would take a turn and I'd be unable to help I spent the morning on the verge of sobbing. I tried to be brave. We hiked to the boat, miraculously still hidden in a small enclave, and I pushed us outward along the current. We were going fast, which scared me because I had no idea how to stop us once we made it as far as we could go. Ashley didn't seem to worry. She was out of it. She laid her head on my lap saw her, you know. I immediately knew who she was talking about. The woman made of light. My hands stroked her hair gently. I saw her. I saw her. I saw Belle. I think I saw her again last night. I think I saw her, but all made out of light. My stomach was doing flips, but I kept rubbing her temples. Baby, just rest. She shook her head tears forming in the corners of her eyes. She held my hand tightly. We looked and looked when she went missing, but we never found her. I've been out here a dozen times since then, and I never saw her again. I thought I could ignore it when I heard the soft singing that sounded like her. I thought I, I, thought I was imagining it all. I, I thought I made it up, but I didn't, did I? You saw her. I frowned and looked around scanning the trees for any movement. Even then, it felt like there were eyes on us, but I saw nothing. I looked back down at her and forced a slight, strained smile. No, I didn't. We're almost home. We'll be home soon. I don't think Belle died. I think... I think she became something else. Ashley fell asleep on my lap as we drifted down the river. An hour passed. The skies were overcast. The branches overhead hung heavy with moisture from the night before. I jumped at every sound, but eventually I grew tired, yawning once, then again, and again. 
My heart began to pound as I realized that I should not be so tired as I was. I saw movement out of the corner of my eye. So convinced was I that I would see nothing when I turned that it took a second for me to fully register what I was seeing. The woman, blonde-haired in a white dress with glowing eyes, an aura of light around her, creeping towards us from behind the trees. Her song began again, detached and inhuman, but unmistakably hers. She was hunched slightly, but took long, sweeping steps, her legs stretching further than legs could stretch. She reached the water's edge in seconds. I expected her to stop, but gasped when she did not hesitate to walk right into the water. I tried to grab for the oar, but again, I felt my body giving way to sleep. Again, I shook Ashley, and again, she would not wait. I squawked and fumbled desperately, but the energy rapidly drained from my body. Her eyes stayed fixed on me as she waded towards us, unbelievably fast. Her head stayed above the water, and she did not seem to be swimming, but she cut through the water like a knife. I continued to sob as I shook Ashley and weakly called her name. The woman's head disappeared underneath the surface. I looked all around, crying out. The singing rose up all around me, growing louder and louder. I pushed my palms over my ears and sobbed. Suddenly, there was a loud crash. She clutched the side of the boat, long, broken fingernails and blue-tinted skin. Her face appeared over me, eyes glowing, her expression hateful and otherworldly. She began to open her mouth, and there was nothing inside. No teeth, no tongue, a void. I didn't have the strength to scream as I lost consciousness once more. I opened my eyes, and Ashley was gone. I shrieked and wept. I tried to stand, but I was too unsteady and fell back into the bottom of the boat, which was filling slowly with water. I looked around frantically, kicking my hoodie and my shoes off and jumped into the water. It was freezing as if it was the middle of the winter. I hadn't braced myself for it. I didn't have time to think then that the water should not have been so cold in the first week of September. I dragged myself up to the bank searching for any sign of Ashley. I screamed her name until I was hoarse. Where had she gone? The woman couldn't have carried her all the way back to the shore, could she? If Ashley had fallen under, she was already dead. I thought of her cold and alone at the bottom of the river, her eyes wide open, never to close again. I clawed at my arms and hated myself for falling asleep. Over my sobs, I heard the singing. I jumped to my feet, eyes searching the woods. I saw a small light at the mouth of what looked like a cave. The woman, dragging something behind her. I recognized Ashley's shoe. She was pulling Ashley into the cave by the leg. I couldn't tell if she was dead or alive. Another pang of pain and terror shot through me, and I trembled so hard my vision blurred. It seemed impossible that the woman could drag her so easily, exerting so little effort. I screamed, guttural and raw. 
No! Rage surged in my heart, and I bolted up the side of the hill after them, growling like an animal with no caution whatsoever. I was so infuriated at the idea of anyone moving Ashley around like an object that anger consumed me and made me forget my fear. I made it to the mouth of the cave and saw the woman dragging Ashley further. I ran inside and was hit by an overpowering inertia as if the air were quicksand dragging me down. I struggled to put one foot in front of the other. This was exactly the way I felt in the tent and in the boat. Still, I kept going, terrified that I would lose my wife to this ungodly nightmare creature. I fell and my legs bled, but I forced myself back up and kept staggering forward. When I had nearly reached them, the woman turned and opened her mouth once again, screaming so powerfully that it seemed to come from all sides at once. It knocked me to my knees, but I grabbed Ashley by the other ankle. I crawled over to her, putting my entire body over hers. Blood from my ears dripped onto the dirt. No! The woman made no motion. Slowly, I opened my eyes and looked and screamed again. Her face was right next to mine. Her eyes were glossy and dead, but seemingly lit from within by a cold blue flame. Her lips moved, but they did not match the warbled, unintelligible words that came. Her mouth began to open wide, so, so wide. I shut my eyes and waited for the end. What happened after that? I could not say. A couple that had braved the rainy day for a short hike found us. I had shrieked so loudly that they had heard it from half a mile away. I'd still be screaming for help and holding on to Ashley for dear life when they found us. They called the rangers, and the rangers had called the police. The police had called the ambulance, and we were taken back to the city. After a couple of weeks, Ashley's brother Todd brought us Ashley's car and what was left of our things. We were both so dehydrated that we were on the brink of death. They said it would have taken days with no water to cause such a state. In another couple of hours, we'd have died. Ashley and I simply listened and nodded, numb, while the doctors gave us useless advice about bringing sports drinks next time and staying hydrated. As if there would ever be a next time. The police found our clothes shredded and arranged in strange patterns on the shore of the river. They attempted to return them to us, but I threw them away. The months that followed were fought. Neither one of us could sleep. Our therapists didn't believe our stories, so they couldn't help us cope. We took too many sick days, and Ashley had to switch jobs to take a lower pay grade when she lost her patience and walked out of a meeting. We were still committed to each other, but struggling. Rather than opening up, neither of us could talk about it at all. Our communication suffered. Ashley rarely smiled, and I jumped at every noise. She told me only a little more about Belle's disappearance. 
how she had watched her disappear into a cave and had never seen her again. No, how she had seen her once more, but she'd been so certain it was a dream. Scraping on the outside of her window, singing softly, pleading with her to come outside, to come back to the cave, to stay with her there forever. Today is one year later, and I can't stop looking out the window, terrified I will see glowing blue eyes staring back at me. Ashley came home from work about an hour ago. She took a shower and changed into her robe. She made dinner for us, and we ate, mostly in silence. She went into the living room and sat down in her favorite chair, sighing so deeply that my heart ached with sympathy, and I couldn't help but go to her. I stand in the doorway and stare at her, thinking of how much I love her, how vulnerable and afraid I feel, how unable to protect her I was, and how hard it has been on us both to struggle through this. How sometimes I'm afraid that we're losing touch with each other. How scared I am that we will never bounce back from this. Before I can decide on what I want to say to her, she speaks without looking at me. I'm so sorry, Sandra. I'm so sorry I took you back there with me. I'm so sorry for everything. I shrug and look at the floor. You don't have to be sorry. I feel that she might not know that. I might not have shown her. I immediately wish I told her before, you don't have to be sorry. I start to say that, but I let the sentence fall away from me. In the background, under the noise of the city, I hear soft, gentle singing. I'm hit with a wave of nausea and weariness, and I know we don't have long. I walk over to Ashley. She watches me wearily and seems afraid of me, or afraid I might leave, or maybe even afraid of herself. I realize now that there is so much I don't know, so much I've been afraid to ask. Does Belle still whisper to her in the night? Has she come to see me as a burden? Does she resent me for keeping them apart? Is this the day that she finally opens the window and lets her in? I look into my wife's watery eyes, and it's hard for me to say for sure what she's feeling. I smile weakly at her until she smiles back, but I can tell we both want to cry. I take a tentative step forward, then drop to my knees. I kiss her hand, and I rest my head on her legs. Ashley doesn't move for a long time. Then I feel her hand, Gently touch the back of my head, stroking my hair. Her fingers tighten around the base of my ponytail. The singing gets closer. A small light gets bigger.
deer, one of nature's greatest mysteries. Not quite a horse, not quite a dog, not quite a giraffe. But they're weird, aren't they? Even your little deer friends. Just hanging around, doing deer things like standing there or eating leaves or staring. Creepy. No? Just just me? Well, in this tale, shared with us by author Marn S., we meet someone who finds deer as unsettling as I do. Performing this tale are Mary Murphy, Kristen DiMercurio, and Graham Rowett. So don't dismiss someone's fears outright. Maybe there's a good reason some of us are terrified by Cervidae. Maybe we have cause to suffer from elaphophobia. I live in the woods, but not the way most people mean it when they say, I live in the woods. I don't just have a bunch of trees in my backyard. I live on about 10 acres of woodland near a local nature center in a house my grandfather willed me a few years ago. It's an area I've lived in and around for most of my life, so I'm used to the quirks that come with it. Mostly the wildlife and bad cell reception, but sometimes downed trees or snake infestations. My girlfriend Annie is what a lot of people around here would call a city slicker. She lives half an hour away in the closest college town, has an internship at a publishing company, and drives an electric car. We met through some mutual friends who go to the same college, and she doesn't have a problem with driving out to visit me, so we see each other a few times a week. She's a good sport about the bad cell reception, too, and the insects that are constantly trying to get into the house. She doesn't even mind the truck I drive that's older than me, or the suggestion of there being snakes around. In fact, there's only one thing on my property Annie has a problem with, and I didn't notice it until a few months ago. She was driving me back to my place after we'd gone out for dinner and a movie, and it was dark out, the kind of pitch dark it can only really get in the woods. The high beams of her car lit up my gravel driveway as she turned off onto it, lighting up the corridor of trees around us as brightly as if it was still daytime. Annie hummed along and bobbed her head to the radio, and I leaned back in my seat, checking whatever text messages I could before my cell service took a dive. Suddenly, Annie slammed the brakes. I looked up sharply to see if we had reached the house or if an animal had run across the road. But there was nothing out there, just more gravel road. I looked to Annie for some kind of explanation, only to find her recoiling from the windshield, with an expression as though she'd just seen a big fat spider skittering across the kitchen floor. Her gaze was locked on something just to the side of the road, and I followed her line of sight to a spot where the high beams were reflecting off of a handful of wide, glowing eyes like glass marbles, a couple of does, and what looked like a young buck just starting to grow antlers. They're not going to cross. I said that thinking that Annie was afraid of hitting them. I know. So what? You're afraid you're going to catch Lyme's disease? I'm just afraid of them. I'm ashamed to admit it now, but I might have left. 
They're just deer. I leaned across to smack the center of her steering wheel. The car horn sounded in a sudden blast of noise, and the deer scattered back into the woods. I looked at her, and from her face, I could tell any chance of her spending the night at my place was flying away. I know they're just deer, and I'm still afraid of them. I I don't like the way they watch me. She said it like she knew it was silly, and I was tempted to make fun of her a little more, or to tell her a couple of stories from experience of just how stupid deer could be, to reassure her that there wasn't much of anything going on behind those reflective eyes of theirs. But part of me could sense that Annie was genuinely freaked out, and I should just leave it alone. Besides, people have all kinds of weird phobias, Being afraid of deer was probably nothing compared to some of those. I put Annie's phobia out of mind, except for the few times she drove me home, and I watched her anxiously checking the darkness around my house for deer, recoiling the same way she had that first night whenever she spotted any. Watching her watch the deer made me begin to realize that I had no idea how large the deer population on my property really was. During the day, I would occasionally see groups of nine or ten deer grazing on grass at the edge of the tree line near my back porch. Deer of all shapes and sizes, from huge bucks to the tiniest fawns that looked as though they'd just been born. I started trying to keep track of them, to see if it was the same group every time, or different families. But it was hard work. A lot of deer look exactly the same, Even in spite of realizing exactly how many deer lived on my property, I didn't think of them as a problem until the hunter showed up on my doorstep. He drove a truck bigger than mine, a hulking white thing, with an American flag decal plastered all along one side of it, and said he and his buddies had been asked by the nature center to call their deer population. My property butted right up against theirs so he offered to send a few guys my way to clear out the woods around my house. I probably sounded a little more outraged than I should have been. You're culling the deer? Why? Just cutting down the population. He gave me a look like I had no idea what I was talking about. It made me like him less. To be fair, I didn't know what I was talking about in this particular instance. But I'm not fond of that look. It's a look I get a lot, being a woman who lives alone in the woods. Surely there weren't that many deer in the woods. So I asked again why. The hunter still gave me that look, like I was asking questions I should already have known the answer to. Overpopulation. Too many deer at the center screws up the ecosystem. More chance of people getting lime over there, too. And eventually the deer will run out of food and starve. When he put it like that, I got the idea that this was a lot kinder towards the deer than the alternative. I could probably deal with seeing less fawns in my yard if it meant the ones still around had plenty to eat. And less deer meant less for Annie to be afraid of on the night she came over. I gave a curt nod. All right, you can sweep my property too. What do I owe you? Nothing. Our deal with the nature center is we get to keep whatever we kill. Now, you're free to pay extra if you want the meat. That's okay. Thank you, though. I retreated into my house as he walked back towards his truck. 
I found out from a friend who worked at the Nature Center that the culling was scheduled to take place early the next morning, practically before the sun came up. I slept with headphones in that night, intent on ignoring any gunshots that came out of the woods behind my house, if there were any to begin with. Did most hunters still use bows? I'd only been hunting a few times with my grandpa when I was in high school, but I remembered being taught to use a bow. Despite the headphones, I woke up close to the crack of dawn like I usually did when the sun started to pour in from the window next to my bed. I don't go to school, and I have an IT job that lets me work remotely from my laptop, but there's always house chores that need doing, and I like to get them out of the way in the mornings. I was putting out food on the porch for the stray cats that like to come around. When I saw it, a trail of fresh blood in the grass right near the tree line, and a deer crawling its way across the ground, all the way down on its belly, like a scared dog. I'd never seen a deer crawl like that before. There was something unnatural about it, something that made me wonder if it was rabbit. Judging from the blood trail, it was at least wounded. I stepped back into the house and grabbed my grandpa's shotgun out of the garage. It was old, and I wasn't sure it had ever actually been used. My grandpa had told me it was more for scaring off trespassers than anything. Still, there were a few boxes of shells in the garage, and I loaded the gun with buckshot before taking it outside with me. The deer I'd seen before had vanished, leaving only the trail of blood behind it. I steadied my hands on the barrel of the shotgun, my fingers feeling a little frozen in the early morning cold, and walked into the woods as quietly as I could, mindful that any twig I snapped underfoot would likely send any deer, even a herd or rabid one, running. I'd been in the woods around my property before, but not often, and following the blood trail led me deeper inside than I'd ever been before. It was strangely quiet back there, except for the occasional rustling of foliage, and the canopy of trees blotted out the sun in a way that left me perpetually in the shade. The blood trail on the ground never dried up, though. In fact, it got wider and wetter as I continued to follow it. I was sure that any moment I would come upon a deer that had been half eviscerated and somehow crawled all the way back to where it thought it would be safe. What I actually found at the end of the blood trail was something worse, something I still see painted on the backs of my eyelids at night when I'm trying to clear my mind enough to fall asleep. The blood trail didn't belong to a deer. Rather, it ended close to a hollow in the trunk of a large tree that a man lay inside. At least I thought it was a man. I could only see his legs sticking out. A handful of deer stood over him, occasionally lowering their heads down to sniff or lick at the man, and several had mouths that were shiny with blood. I moved closer, cocking the shotgun. The noise startled the deer, and all of them bolted but one. A large doe who stayed right where she was, watching me. A glistening rope dangled from her mouth that I thought might have been part of a hunter's trap, but later realized was a bit of intestine. I took a few more steps forward, watching the doe watch me. 
until I stood over the hollow in the tree. The man inside was the hunter I'd met the previous day. His bright orange coat was soaked with blood, his chest and abdomen bitten open in more places than I could count, the skin torn away in lazy strips. His skin had turned to sickly gray, and there were strange, round wounds in his neck, like he'd been stuck with a stake or a screwdriver. Antler wounds, I realized, my stomach turning over. I reached out to lift his coat slightly with the end of the shotgun, and recoiled as I caught sight of his ribs through one of the holes the deer had bitten in him. A twig snapped next to me. The doe was still there, still looking at me with her big, glassy eyes, still munching on the rope of the hunter's intestines. I raised a shotgun and unloaded buckshot into her. That was a few days ago, and I haven't left the house since. I called the nature center to ask how the calling went, and they said that half the hunters who went into the woods never came back out. The police came by to ask if I'd seen or heard anything from my property, and I lied. Whoever heard of deer eating someone alive? I've been thinking, though, about what the hunter said to me when he came by, about how when there are too many deer on a property... They start to run out of food, starve. I've heard before that a lot of herbivore animals will eat meat if they've run out of options. What I haven't heard about is animals like that doing it in a vengeful way, an intelligent way, not eating the nature center employees, but the hunters instead. I haven't seen the stray cats that live around here all week. The food I left out for them that morning hasn't been touched. But I have seen the deer. They've been circling my house all week, crawling on their bellies in the grass, like the one that led me to the hunter. I can't help but feel like they know what I did to that doe somehow, like one of them saw me shoot her and pass the knowledge on, like the deer think I'm a hunter too. They haven't gotten up to the doors yet. But some of the bucks are on my back porch, looking into the windows. I drew all the curtains in the house, turned off all the lights, but I can still feel their eyes on me, right outside. It can't be long before they try to break the glass. I swear I've heard them tapping on it with their antlers, testing where the weak points are. I've peeked out of the second floor windows at night, trying to catch them at it. But all I ever see are their reflective eyes shining up at me out of the dark. Annie was right to be afraid. I'm sorry I doubted her. In our final tale, we head to the safest place on Earth, a summer camp. Who ever heard of anything bad happening at one of those? 
But joking aside, you won't find any hockey masks or machetes here that are being used for nefarious purposes. In this tale, shared with us by author Elias Witherow, there's something much worse than a slasher killer lurking in the woods. Performing this tale are Graham Rowett, Atticus Jackson, Jesse Cornett, and Nicole Goodnight. So don't bother going on vacation to Manhattan or Springwood or space this summer. Just head on over to the paradise that is Pine Palaces. I arrived at the Pine Palaces three days ago. It was as beautiful as the website boasted. High up in the West Virginia mountains, where the air was untouched by cities and smog, and where you could feel the purity in every breath. The cabins I'd be maintaining, along with the other two summer workers, weren't quite palaces, but they were elegant in a natural sort of way. Each log cabin was decked out in all the usual outdoor decor. Animal heads hung silently on the walls, Polished, exposed wood filled the interiors with a delightful smell, and a fireplace sat ready to burn the neatly stacked pile of wood that rested beside it. There were eight cabins in total, six for the guests, one for the workers, and one for the owner of the retreat, Ken, who lived there year-round. They formed a semicircle along the perimeter of tall trees, where space had been made for a giant fire pit in the center. Half a mile down the dirt road, there was a lake that Ken rented out paddle boats for the guests to use. I'd asked him upon arrival if employees could use them free of charge, and he'd winked and told me if he liked his workers. Behind the cabins, down a path that led into the woods about 400 feet from the clearing, was where our maintenance supplies were kept. Rakes, leaf blowers, a couple axes, a chainsaw, the usual upkeep wares. I remember on the first day when Ken showed us the old shed. One of my fellow workers, Carter, had asked why he kept the supplies so far back. Ken had chuckled and told us that we'd understand once we got married and went on vacation with our families. He slung his arm around my shoulder and said that he'd never seen people fight worse than up here, where most modern amenities were unavailable. Ken threw Penny a wink. Wouldn't put it past one of them to take the chainsaw to their significant other. <laughs> Penny, the last piece to our trinity of workers, looked at Carter and then at me, her face unsure and a little nervous. Don't you worry. I've never had trouble up here. Real trouble, anyway. Most folks are good people. Just looking to get away from all the nonsense. They come up here and roast their marshmallows and eat their hot dogs and listen to the silence. After that, we all went back to the cabins and Ken began instructing us on our daily duties for the summer, and we prepared the site for the arrival of our first wave of visitors the next day. Three days later, I found that I enjoyed being up in the mountains more than I'd anticipated. The quiet days... The chirps, squeaks, and groans of nature, the warm yellow sun, and the explosion of bright crystal stars that light the night. Carter, Penny, and myself all got along very well. 
In fact, it felt weird that we'd only known each other for three days. We were all outgoing, inspired, and we all wanted something a little different to fill our time between semesters. We wanted to go back to college in the fall and have unique experiences and adventures to tell our friends. And then there was Ken. Ken had been running this place for 28 years. His dad built it, and when he passed away, Ken took over. He was proud of it. You could tell by the way he worked, the way he moved, and the way he talked to the guests. He was about 60, but had the mentality of a man in his young 20s. He was energetic, kind, and made everyone feel welcome. He insisted all the visitors call him Grandpa Ken, and if anyone wanted, at sundown he'd tell stories about the history of the mountains and the land around us. It was charming, and I found myself looking forward to that time of the day. That was all before I found that fucking well. I pulled the paddle boat behind Ken's cabin and wiped the sweat off my face with a dirty hand. That's the last of them. Everyone is in for the day. Penny should be done stacking the wood for tonight's fire. You want to see if she wants to go for a swim? Carter, a tall and thin guy, sporting glasses and blonde hair that he was always pushing away from his lenses, nodded. Yeah. That sounds good. I feel like I'm gonna melt. It's hot as hay fever today, isn't it? <laughs> Got that right. You go check out with Ken. Let him know we're finished for the day. Make sure he doesn't need anything. I'll go help Penny put the tools away. Okay. I brushed my hands on my jeans and walked around to the front of the cabin. A couple of guests were sitting on their porches, enjoying the shade and starting to wind down for the evening. I spotted Penny by the fire pit, Stacking the last few pieces of wood. All done? She looked up at me. Yeah, that should do it. I hope that's enough. Penny was a cute girl. Nothing to write home about, but her charm came less from her looks, but more from the adorable way she always worried she was going to get into trouble. I smiled back. It's fine. You really think Ken has the capacity to yell at you, even if it's not? She shrugged. I just want it to be right. It is. Now, do you want to go swimming with Carter and me? He's letting Ken know right now. She lit up. Oh, that sounds fantastic. Can you put the axe back in the shed while I go suit up? Sure thing. Thanks. I'll meet you back here. I bent and picked the axe up as she scampered off to our cabin to change. I slung the axe over my shoulder and made my way to the path that led into the woods, nodding my hellos to the guests as I passed. The woods were quiet today, a low hum of wildlife getting lost in the gentle sway of trees that danced back and forth in the sunlight. My boots kicked up dry dirt as I walked. And I wondered when the last time it had rained. As I was about to round the final bend to the shed, something caught my eye. About 30 or 40 steps to my left, off the path, I spotted something coming out of the ground. Curiosity took over, and I began to make my way towards it. 
I wondered why I hadn't noticed it on my previous trips back here. But I'd been more concentrated on sticking to the path and not getting myself lost. As I walked closer, I saw that it was a well. Its stone sides rising up out of the ground in the center of a big clearing. I broke through the tree line and stopped dead in my tracks. A heaviness came over me. A thick unease bubbled in my stomach. Something was making my skin crawl, and I felt goosebumps form on my arms. I licked my suddenly dry lips and swallowed hard. A warning light was going off in my mind, and my unease turned to panicked nausea. Suddenly, I didn't even want to look at the well. I turned my eyes away and stood there, unable to move. I tried to tell myself to snap out of it, but the unbearable avalanche of horror that filled me when I tried to look at the well wouldn't allow it. I needed to leave. I felt my hands shaking at my sides, and I realized that I dropped the axe. I couldn't even will myself to pick it up. Why was I being such a baby? I asked myself, still not moving. As soon as the thought crossed my mind, I knew the answer. Because there's something down there. I ran. The terror turned to a feeling of haunting danger, and I fled. I crashed back down the path to the cabins, my sudden disruption causing a few of the visitors to look my way curiously. I looked at them and offered a weak smile, shaking my head and feeling slightly stupid now. I went to find Penny and Carter. The terror was fading quickly now that I was back around people, and I was starting to feel ridiculous about the whole incident. My breath steadied, and my heart rate slowed. I shook my head, rolling my eyes. Get a grip, man. I found Carter and Penny, and we all strolled down to the lake and went swimming. The cool water washing the dirt and sweat off us. I decided not to say anything to either of them about the well, but made a mental note to ask Ken what the deal was after his nighttime stories. Sleep tight, folks, and thanks for listening. The guests offered Ken a genuine round of applause. We were all sitting around a roaring fire, and Ken had just finished telling us about how this place was built. For such a mundane story, Ken had filled it with the practiced flair and charm that only old men seem to be gifted with when telling a tale. As the visitors thanked Ken and lifted sleeping children over their shoulders to bed, I approached him. Can I ask you about something real quick? Ken, still sitting at his bench in front of the fire, patted the space next to him. He pulled out a cigar and cut the tip off, striking a match against the wood bench. Sure thing, kiddo. Have a seat. I took my place, watching as the last of the guests retreated to their cabins for the evening. Carter and Penny looked at us inquisitively and came over, curious as to what I was going to ask. I took a deep breath. 
What's the deal with the well back by the supply shed? Ken froze, his match hovering inches from the tip of his unlit cigar. After a second, he lit it and took a couple of deep puffs from it before answering. What do you mean, son? Carter and Penny had taken a seat on the bench next to us. What well? There's a well back there? I pointed in the direction it was in. Yeah, it's in a clearing, a little off the path. Ken turned his head and looked directly at me. Don't go near there. You understand me? The seriousness in his voice shook me. His grandpa persona was gone, and his eyes were cold black rock. I mean it, son. Ain't nothing good back there. Just steer clear of it, okay? What's wrong with that? Ken took another drag, obviously uncomfortable with the conversation, before answering. It's dangerous. There's something wrong with it. I don't know what it is, but I know for a fact that... Well, that people aren't supposed to be around it. There's something... unnatural about it. It's best you all keep your distance. Carter leaned forward, his eyes lighting up. Is it haunted or something? Ken shook his head. No. Ain't no such thing as ghosts, kid. But there are other... forces of nature that humankind just aren't meant to find. I swallowed hard, remembering the terror from earlier. Ken... Is there something down there? Ken was silent for a moment, the crack of the fire popping sparks around us. Yes. What is it? Have you ever looked down there? Ken shook his head. Can't bring myself to get near the thing, truth be told. Suddenly his head whipped around, and he was looking hard at me again. You didn't look down it, did you? I shook my head. No. Honestly, I got spooked just being around it. That's why I asked. It seems so jarring compared to the peace these mountains hold. Ken let out a sigh, but Carter wasn't done asking questions. How do you know something's down there, then? Ken tapped his cigar, and a hearty piece of ash floated to the ground. Uh, I had a horse, back when I first took over the camp. He paused, looked at Penny, and cleared his throat. <clears throat> I don't want to go scaring Penny. Just take my word on this, and stay away. I want to hear. I didn't blame her. 
Something about the sober tone in Ken's voice begged for explanation. Ken stared into the fire as he spoke. I suppose you're all adults. But let me warn you. And what I'm about to tell you is rather... unsettling. With a giant sigh, he continued, summoning the old memories. He swept his hand across the dark horizon. Back when I took over this place, I had a horse. I named her Cherry. It's a beautiful creature. And for the first couple of weeks, it was just me and Cherry. I was working on fixing the place up and getting it ready again for guests. And during the evenings, I would ride Cherry all through these mountains. And let me tell you, you haven't seen a sunset till you've seen one appear when the leaves are changing. Anyway, one evening I tied up Cherry to that tree over there. He pointed towards the path that led back into the woods. We were about to go for our evening trot. I went inside to wash my face and change out of my trousers. I wasn't gone but five minutes. And when I came out, Cherry was gone. I didn't see her anywhere. But I could hear her. And she was screaming. Penny's eyes went wide. Screaming? I ain't ever heard anything like it before. But I took off down the path towards where I heard her. And that's when I found the well for the first time. He paused, silently puffing on his cigar. After a few moments, he continued... Cherry was trying to force her way down the well. She was too big, though. She was stuck, her rump sticking up in the air, her head down in the hole. And let me tell you, she was going mad. Her hind legs were kicking and scraping against the stone walls of the well, trying her hardest to push the rest of her body inside. She was thrashing and wiggling around, all the while screaming down into that hole. But there was nothing I could do for her. I was too afraid. Something was keeping me from getting close to that well. I could feel the hairs on the back of my neck rising. Pretty sure I wet my trousers at some point as I stood there watching. Oh, I was frightened. What happened then? Ken looked around at all three of us. She eventually squeezed down into the blackness. It took her the better part of an hour to do it. She wiggled and kicked till she scraped off her skin and she fit. 
ain't seen so much blood before in my life. How she was still alive, I don't know. But I stood there and watched, paralyzed, as she grated herself against the stone till eventually she slipped down inside and immediately she stopped screaming. We were all quiet as he finished. Ken idly flicked more ash from his cigar and stared at the ground. The unbelievable events he'd just shared with us chilled me. I remembered the feeling of being close to the well. I shivered. Ken eventually stood, tossing his cigar into the fire. It's getting late. <clears throat> Why don't you kids get some sleep, huh? It's gonna be hot tomorrow. I think a lot of the guests are gonna want to use the paddle boats. We all stood up and wished him a good night. All of us somber and a little rattled. Except for Carter. His eyes buzzed with light. We retired to our cabin and began preparing for bed. Penny slept in her own room, and after brushing her teeth and washing her face, she bid us good night. Before she closed her door, I stopped her. You okay, Pen? You're not freaked out? She gave me an uneasy smile. I'm not sure if I believe everything he said. But it was a pretty creepy story nonetheless. I'll be okay. Thanks, though. And with that, she shut her door. I went to the room Carter and I shared, stripped down to my boxers, and laid down on my bed. Carter followed and turned the lights off. We were silent for a while, and then I heard him sit up. Dude, let's go check it out. I sat up as well, slightly alarmed. What? No way, man. You heard Ken. We should stay away from it. Oh, come on. It'll be spooky. You know how great it'll be to tell Penny in the morning that we went and looked down the well? Carter, you didn't see it. You weren't there. It creeped me out. No way I'm going back at night. Now just lay down and go to sleep. Please? Just drop it. After a moment, I heard him sigh and lay back down. Relieved, I closed my eyes and stared at the ceiling. Sleep did not come quickly. I don't know what time it was when my eyes snapped open, but something was wrong. I jerked into a sitting position and let my tired eyes adjust. Carter was gone. Shit, 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 you idiot! What the hell? I stood and grabbed my clothes. I didn't take Carter as an adventurous person, never mind a brave one. What was he thinking? If he was where I thought he was, then I needed to tell Ken immediately. 
I had been by the well. I knew the story held truth, and I knew that there was something dangerous about it. I thought about waking Penny, but decided against it. I stomped into my boots and flung the door open. The night was calm. A fat white moon dripping its vanilla rays down to meet me. The camp was still, and sleep coated the air. I marched down the stairs and turned towards Ken's cabin, when something caught my eyes towards the tree line. Carter was walking towards me. He spotted me and gave me a sly smile. Well, well. Change your mind? The big fire in the middle of the camp from earlier was almost out but there was just enough flame that I could make out his features as he approached me. What the hell are you doing? He put his hands in his pockets and shrugged. Sorry, man. Just had to see it for myself. Took me forever to find it. You... you saw the well? He nodded, the smile still on his face. I licked my lips. And? He slapped me on the shoulder. Ken's full of crap, I'm afraid. It's just a stupid well. There's nothing down there, man. I released a breath I didn't know I'd been holding in. Wait, really? You actually went and looked down inside? He chuckled and rubbed his eyes. Yep. No ghosts or monsters, I'm afraid. Just Ken jerking us around. It was a good story, I'll give him that. I shook my head. Well, I guess I'm just a big baby then. Let's tell Penny in the morning. I think she was a little freaked out. <laughs> All right. I'm totally busting on Ken too for trying to freak us out. Come on, let's go to bed. As we turned back towards our cabin, the dying fire splashed the last of its light on Carter's face. And I noticed that his eyes were incredibly bloodshot. He rubbed them again, and we went back inside and slept till morning. The next day was blistering hot. As predicted, most of the guests wanted to take the paddle boats out onto the lake. Ken, back to his grandpa routine, helped the three of us make sure they were accommodated and happy. He asked if we would take shifts, staying down by the water and keeping an eye on things. Penny said she'd take the first shift, and so Carter and I stayed behind and saw to the daily chores. We'd ended up not telling her, after a quick talk in our room that morning. We agreed that it was better if she didn't know because of her constant paranoia of getting in trouble. And if she was frightened by Ken's story, she didn't show it as she went about her morning. Carter was cheerful despite the heat and helped me prepare the wood for the evening's fire. His eyes were still terribly bloodshot, and when I asked him about it, he shrugged it off. Probably caught me a case of double pink eye. Just my luck. They itch like crazy. You think Ken has something for him? Eye drops, maybe? I dragged another log over to the chopping block. Hey, Mike. It looks bad, man. He scrubbed at them. 
Ah, let's finish this first, shall we? Today was cleaning day, and after we finished the wood, Carter went to relieve Penny. He ended up not speaking to Ken about his eyes, despite my protests. He said maybe a swim would clear them up, and I told him not to touch anyone if he was going to keep itching them. About a half hour after Carter left, Penny came strolling up the hill, looking hot. She wiped sweat from her forehead. You would never know that I was in the water ten minutes ago. It's stifling today, isn't it? Yeah. I'm looking forward to my shift at the lake. Did you see Carter? Yeah. What's wrong with his eyes? He thinks it's pink eye. She shivered. Oh, gross. Poor guy. So, who do we have left? We're cleaning the cabins today, right? Midweek scrub for guests? I stretched my arms over my head. Yeah, sounds fun, doesn't it? Ken told me this morning we don't have to go overboard. The deep clean is on Sunday in between arrivals. Just neaten up. Make sure the bathrooms are clean, get rid of trash, all that. All right, let's get to it then. We both went to gather supplies for our afternoon of upkeep. Time went quickly with the two of us chatting and cleaning. The work quickly muted to the sound of good conversation and laughs. Penny was a nice girl, and I found myself unable from growing slightly fond of her. We hadn't gotten much time to talk one-on-one, and I found her to be quite the pleasant person. As the sun crawled across the sky like a dying man in the desert, we finished up the last of the houses. I blinked sweat out of my eyes and let out a long sigh as I saw Carter trudging up the hill. He saw us and waved, meeting us in the middle of camp. His eyes were still bloodshot, but they looked much better than they had that morning. Save any lives? Any hot moms rescued? <laughs> Carter threw his head back and laughed. Afraid not. Nope, just a bunch of whiny kids and drunk dads. You guys finished cleaning? Yeah, all that's left is to rake the grounds. I'm gonna go change and head down for a dip. I mean, to keep an eye on everyone. We all laughed and split ways. Carter and Penny going to retrieve the rakes, and myself heading down to the lake. The water was cold and wonderful. As the sun slowly dipped into a rainbow of colors, I spent the remainder of the day swimming and having casual conversation with the guests. I couldn't think of a more pleasant way to end the day. The story that night was about Ken's vision for the campsite. He told the guests about all the improvements he wanted to make and how he wanted to redo the cabins. He involved the visitors, asking for their feedback and accepting their comments graciously. Most of the people had nothing but good things to say, all of them thanking the four of us for being such wonderful hosts and how they couldn't wait to come back the next year and see the place. After the conversation dulled to a murmur and the moon rose high, everyone thanked us again and began to turn in for the night. After everyone was inside... Ken informed us that he was tired and he was going to turn in as well. We all wished him a good night and went back to our cabin. 
Feeling exhausted myself from the heat and day's activities, I told Carter and Penny I was going to bed. They both agreed with me, and we went to our rooms for the night. I laid in my bed with my eyes closed. How's your eyes? Carter turned off the light next to my bed and crawled under his sheets. It still looks like crazy. But I don't think they're as pink as they were this morning. Maybe tomorrow it'll be better. I muttered my agreement and felt the day disappear into slumber. I awoke with my heart racing. I was bathed in a thick sheen of sweat and my throat was dry. Something wasn't right. My breath rattled past my cracked lips into the dead air. I tried to sit up, but I crashed back down into my bed. Something was restraining me. What the hell? I wiggled around and found that my wrists and ankles were tied to the bedposts. Confused and terrified, I fought with them for a few vain seconds before finally giving up. I raised my head to look over to Carter's bed. He wasn't in it. Carter? Carter, where are you? Silence. And then... Shh. The noise came from his side of the room, but I didn't see him. Heart still pounding, I stretched my fingers out to try and flick the lamp on next to my bed. My fingertips brushed the switch, and I pulled my hand back as the ropes binding me cut into my skin. Carter, what the hell is going on? Where are you? Shh. I didn't know if he was playing some kind of joke on me, and I didn't want to start screaming and wake all the guests if that was the case. So I stretched my hand out again, finding the pain that was burning into my wrists from the rope. Just a little bit there. I turned the lamp on and yellow light pushed the shadows back. At first I didn't see Carter, but movement caught my eye. He was laying under his bed, looking directly at me. He was smiling, and in horror I saw that his eyes were nothing more than two bloody pulpy orbs, rubbed so raw that he had cut into them with his fingernails and torn them out. They won't stop itching. He said this, still smiling. And then he was up. Like lightning, he scurried out from under the bed and was on top of me. I struggled and was about to scream when he shoved a piece of cloth into my mouth hard. I gagged as his fingers pushed the torn sheet deeper, his thighs holding my body still with an iron clasp. Just keep it down, buddy. His breath was dry and smelled of bile. His bloody, mushed sockets stared down at me, and I turned my face away the gore making me lightheaded. He sat up on me. Is it gross? It is, isn't it? 
Here. Let me do something about that. He reached beside me and ripped apart the sheet I was lying under. He tied it around his eyes and the back of his head. The blood soaking through and appearing to give him two phantom red eyes. There. That's better. I can see better like this anyway. I was hoping you wouldn't wake up. But I decided I needed to tie you up in case you decided to go looking for me again. I whipped my head around and tried to buck him off me. Terror and confusion slamming into me with every word Carter said. He held on and gripped my body tighter with his legs, pressing down on my chest with his hands. Stop that. You're safe. I'm not gonna hurt you. I just need you to stay here. Okay? He lightly slapped my cheek. Stay. He was about to get off me when he paused, smiled to himself, and leaned back towards me, whispering in my ear. But there's something you should know. Do you want to know what it is? You do, don't you? I bit down on the cloth in my mouth and nodded. He licked his lips. I'm going to go cut Penny's fucking head off. My eyes widened, and I screamed into my gag, thrashing wildly. He chuckled softly and held me still, waiting patiently till I wore myself out. Panting hard around the cloth, I looked up at him, his smile full of teeth, the glistening red outline of his mutilated eyes bleeding through the linen. The well. The thought crashed into my chaotic mind like a truck. It was the well. He had seen something down there. Somehow it had changed him. Suddenly, Carter raised his fists and brought them smashing down into my face, knocking me into darkness. I awoke again, face swollen and painful. My vision swam. The room was dark again. I was still gagged, and I could feel my breath becoming labored as my nose was clotting with blood. I was going to suffocate if I didn't get this rag out of my mouth. Slowly, in a daze, I worked my tongue and teeth over it until I finally could spit it out. Gasping in deep, grateful breaths, I struggled against the ropes that held me. After a few frustrating moments, I finally loosened them enough to get a hand free. A few more minutes of tearing, and I was completely out of my bindings. Penny. Oh no, Penny. I dashed to her room and kicked the door open. empty. I felt my heart bubble up into my throat, and I stood there trembling. Oh no. Oh no, oh no, please, please, please. 
My eyes filled with tears, and I crashed out of the cabin. Get Ken. Get Ken now. The night was thick, the air clawing at my skin with humidity. The moon stared down at me, uncaring and indifferent. The fire had gone out in the middle of the camp, and as I was about to charge Ken's cabin down at the end of the lot, I heard something. It was Penny. I stood, frozen and immobile. It was coming from the woods. I knew where she'd been taken. Biting my lip, my face screwed up in mental agony, I looked at Ken's cabin, and then bolted towards the woods, towards the well. Penny might have seconds to live, if she was still alive. I needed to get to her and stop Carter. Please, God, let her still be okay. Please, please, God. I crashed down the path, bare feet scraping against stones and branches, my toes slamming into rock and wood. I didn't care. I didn't think about it. I flew as fast as my legs would take me, heart beating faster with every step. There. I reached the curve on the path and turned left into the woods. Crashing through the underbrush, I held my hands out in front of me, pushing aside the low-hanging branches and leaves that reached towards my face. Panting, I broke into the clearing and froze. Carter had Penny bent over the opening of the well. He was standing behind her with a fist gripping her hair, pulling her head back to expose her throat. The muscles on his arms strained as he worked a knife into her pale flesh, slowly slicing into her, back and forth, back and forth, deeper and deeper. He paused and looked up, seeing me. Oh. Hey. Honey! In the moonlight, her eyes slowly rolled over to meet mine. Agony. Tears rolled down my face. Jesus fucking Christ, Penny! Hang on! Carter ignored my outburst, taking the time to wipe sweat from his face and tightening the cloth around his eyes. You know, this is a lot harder than you'd think. Carter, stop! It's Penny! You're killing her! He stared at me silently the blood-stained sheet around his eyes looking black. Finally, he motioned at me with his bloody knife, one hand still gripping Penny's hair. Come stop me, then. I swallowed and was about to charge him when I realized I couldn't. My knees had turned to water and all the strength in my body had drained. The forest seemed to press in on me. My breath came out in little gasps, and I was terrified. I felt my bladder release and warmth spread down my legs. The well. The fucking well. I couldn't even look at it. 
I was filled with such nightmares that I wanted nothing more than to turn and run. Get out of here. Get out of these mountains and get as far away from that fucking well as I could. Carter was smiling. You can't. Can you? You're terrified. He tapped the top of the well with his knife, and his smile grew. Come on. Come over here. Look down there. Look down in the well. My vision blurred with tears, and snot bubbled out of my nose. Please. Please stop this. Carter shook his head slowly. No. In fact, I think it's time to finish this. He raised his knife again and brought it back to Penny's throat. She was slumped over now, but just as he was about to resume cutting, her eyes met mine as she muttered a single word. Run. Hearing her speak, I ripped myself from my terror. Face streaked with tears and mucus, I charged Carter. Every step towards him, my body seemed to increase in weight, pulling me to the earth. I gripped my teeth and steeled my adrenaline, crashing into Carter just as he was turning towards me, mouth agape in surprise. He slammed into the side of the well, hard, knocking the knife out of his hands. We both went down, and I hit my head against the stone, stunning me. The world spun, and I heard him growling, already beginning to stand. You don't know what you're doing, you fucking idiot! He grabbed me by the hair and slammed my face into the ground. I bit my tongue and howled in pain, feeling blood fill my mouth. Dizzy, I rolled onto my back and stared up at him. He stepped on my chest and leaned down, his voice raw. You can't stop this! He quickly jumped back and grabbed Penny, pulling her up and across his shoulders. He hoisted them both up onto the lip of the well, and silently, they tumbled down into the darkness. They were gone. No! My voice splintered. I scrambled up, sobbing, pleading, and gripped the sides of the well. I looked down into the blackness. I looked down into the well. My eyes went wide, and the world stopped.
As we place the letters back in their envelopes, it's time to take our leave for now. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor-in-chief is Jessica McAvoy. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and being a supportive Season Pass member and for being ever curious. This audio production is copyright 2021 by Creative Reason Media, Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.